National Geographic Documentary Films and Picture House present The Mission, the gripping story of John Chow, the American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island. Hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year. A nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. The Mission, in theaters October 13th. Hey, I'm John Ridley, a writer, director, and founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline.com. And this is Doc Talk, a podcast where each week Matt and I dig into the critical content being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers, and industry leaders, artists who are changing cinema, and sometimes the world, one doc at a time. And among those incredible documentarians are Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss, who won an Emmy for their film, Boys State. And they have a new film out, The Mission, which is a remarkable story of a young man named John Chow, a, an evangelical Christian who went on a, a mission to try to convert a remote indigenous group to Christianity with fatal results. So here now is our interview with Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss of The Mission. Directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss of The Mission, welcome to Doc Talk. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? Great. We've all spoken before in different ways, but I talked to you, I guess it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, one of the first iterations when I was doing this. You did an amazing film, Boys State, which I loved. If people have not seen that documentary, among many that you've done, I would really encourage people to see Boys State. I mentioned at the time I'd been through Boys State, and it was just, it, it brought back a lot of memories. You've done a film in the interim, but this film that Matt and I are going to talk with you about today, The Mission, it is, and, and I went back and I looked at your IMDb page because I thought maybe it was accidental, but it is another film about young people who are passionate and live those passions. You have done many things, but of the two that I have seen and seen most recently, these are incredible films about passion. So just want to set that context um, and also say, great to speak with you again. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. And I think the films are in conversation. And I think they're also about masculinity as well as passion. Yes, that's a great point. So the story goes back in terms of the public learning about it to November in 2018. There's a New York Times article that talks about a young man, John Chow, age 26, who was shot down with arrows while trying to convert an indigenous people on the North Sentinel Islands in the Andaman Sea. He went there and with great hopes of converting them to Christianity, and it ended tragically. But set, set up the film a little bit for us in terms of what John was, was aiming to do and how long he was working on the mission. Well, the story starts with that headline. It's, it's a pretty arresting headline. Young man, young American man shot dead by arrows on this remote island, seeking to convert this tribe, this culture that we know almost nothing about, the Sentinelese. They live on this tiny island called North Sentinel. Most people couldn't find it on a map. It's really thought of as like one of the last unmapped places on our planet. They're not an uncontacted tribe. They have been contacted. But John went there seeking to convert them to Christianity. He was living his faith in a very radical way. Uh, he trained for 10 years to get to North Sentinel. He was uh, an intelligent, thoughtful, methodical, 
passionate young man, and his journey ended tragically. That's where we took up the story. I think we wanted to look behind the headlines. John was reduced to a, a zealot, a suicidal bonsai charge, and we thought there was a richer, more complicated, more nuanced story that we hoped to tell. We have a clip uh, from your film, and this is an actor reading from John Chow's diary. It really helps us understand his mental perspective on this mission as an evangelical who, in some respects, was taking a literal inspiration from the teachings of the Bible to go and convert those who don't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, this is an actor reading from the diary of John Chow. I plan on arriving on the shores of an island in which an unknown number of people live, who have unknown religious beliefs and speak an unknown tongue. Some have called this the most difficult and impossible place to reach on Earth. Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold? Soli Deo Gloria, John Chow. Very interesting there that, you know, he's almost anguished of thinking about the North Sentinel Islands as perhaps the last stronghold of Satan. Well, that's that's pretty compelling. And again, if you take your faith as seriously and interpret it the way that John Chow did, it's it's kind of a command. You must go there and bring the faith to these people who know nothing of it. I think it's also interesting to think about as a place that is unknown also to John. It wasn't just unknown to us. It's an unknown place. It has been contacted, but very few people have actually made it to the island. And I think that that's how he viewed that place, having never been there. And for us, so much of this project was trying to understand who would want to make contact with a mostly uncontacted tribe. Why would they do that? But also to contextualize and understand who these people were without going to the island. How do we do that? And how could it be that there's still these people that no one really knows about? Yeah, and, and to be clear, and John was well aware of this, it's, it's illegal for outsiders to go to the island. They are part of India, technically. And he knew that. He knew that this was an illicit undertaking, if you will. He prepared as though he were undertaking a clandestine mission. Clandestine is a better word. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> we uncovered, in addition to the diary, which was released by his family after his death, which is remarkable and anguished, he wrote a master plan in which he laid out exactly how he was going to achieve his mission. And we excerpt that as well in the film. It's interesting for those of us who didn't grow up in, in the church, I think to hear John's words describing these people as in Satan's grip, that's not language that we at least are used to using and describing other people. But I think it's reflective of the intensity of John's beliefs and what he hoped to save them from eternal hellfire. Yeah, look, I, I have to jump in right there because this is where your film gets phenomenally interesting to me, because I feel like there's a story within a story here. There's, there's John's story, which is, is powerful, it's tragic, it's sad. But then there's this story that you're talking about, and both of you talked about, you know, uh, in the clip, Satan's last grip and the hellfire and things like this. And there's this other story within the story, and that's that concept of adventuring, anthropology, and how it was created through a very westernized lens. 
in this story. And and this is what I want to get to. And, and we spoke a little, just briefly before we started rolling. And I said, this is what I really want to get into. And, and I, I just want to say again, John's story within your film is incredibly powerful. It, it's tragic. Listening to his father, who's also so much of the faith, but isn't there with his son. Those aspects of the film are incredible. But this sort of anglicized view of we need to go to those people, people who do not have either Western sensibilities or are are simple and they love their simplicity. It's one of two things, then those things become conflated. Either they live this incredibly simple life and, oh, they must be happy in a way with that simplicity. But if we could just give them this one thing, also, wouldn't that be wonderful? Here's what I want to get to. That ideology has been perpetrated for years, decades, maybe centuries, by National Geographic. And yet you're a National Geographic film, and you guys go there. So I'm interested in two things. One, clearly I'm asking a question. You, you got there, it's in the film, so um, your corporate masters, you know, they, they understood. And by the way, they have apologized in the past for some of their covers, so I don't want to pretend they didn't. But what was it like unearthing this or going through this and realizing that, you know, you are in some ways not biting, but you're not exonerating anyone in this story, which is what documentarians, you, you all need to do. I don't think we realize the extent to which this story would hold a mirror up to us, white Westerners, but also National Geographic, our corporate patron. Though so some of that was a discovery, John, the, the adventuring theology that John Chow embraced, which we share, because we don't share his Christian faith, but the Tintin and the Robinson Crusoe and all of those movies that he watched about heroic young boys surviving in the wilderness, those are stories that we took in. And actually, I think we're reckoning with those stories in a different way now. We're seeing them differently. And part of that is National Geographic in its own form. Now, John read National Geographic, but but so did we. We had the Yellow Magazine in my house growing up, and I thought of it as a kind of religious text, and I studied it. And it's important that when we started the project, our executive, Anaccio, said, go there. We're not afraid. And we know we have on our hands some responsibility here. National Geographic had supported an expedition to the island of North Sentinel in the 1970s. You see the pictorial in the film, how it depicts the Sentinelese. And they, not only that, but a history of 100 years of coverage of indigenous communities looked at through a Western lens. And a lot of that is probably another film, but there was a way for us to go there in this movie, and it's really important and I think really contextualized. Yeah, you, you, you did. You went there, and I do. I truly appreciate that. I was kind of stunned when it started, and, and by the way, it, it is part of the narrative of the film, this idea of, it's called the Great Commission, right? That's what it's called. And you talk about some of these films. There is a film, and, and it is more, I hate to call it maybe agitprop, but I believe the, the title of the film and the story that's told, and I think it's important in this story because it's a romanticized version of what happened. The Tip of the Spear, is that the, the, the right. name of the film? Yeah. Yes. Uh, talk about that for a moment. Talk about why that is important and was important in terms of same kind of almost U.S. Uh, World War II agitprop type films. Hey, this is what we fight for. That kind of a film. We knew early on there was going to be a couple films we were going to have in our movie. That National Geographic expedition it was a natural part of our story. So it was a natural and organic way to depart into the bigger story of National Geographic and the complicity there. The tip of the spear was such an essential 
part of John's upbringing and understanding of the mythology of what he ended up doing himself, which is being the kind of missionary that does the even more radical version of missionary work where you are willing to die. And I think for many people like him and Dan Everett, who's also in our film, those were incredibly important texts in how they understood their own calling and how they interpret that portion of the Bible you mentioned, the Great Commission, in different ways by different people, all devout. His own father has a different interpretation. John's own father has a different interpretation of that piece of the Bible. And what I do think is interesting about John is that he was, and his father, are both very—they do think about the history of colonialization while they're doing that interpretation of the Great Commission, and his father has a different version of it than he does. And that's really interesting in and of itself. It's kind of inside baseball for for um, Christians, but it is important because yeah. interpretation is everything here. And there wasn't a complete lack of self-awareness here on John's part. The paradox of John is he wasn't a, a deluded madman. He was a, quite a rational, intelligent, thoughtful young person. He read a lot. He did this master plan as like a book report. You'd give it an A minus probably if you were grading it. He clearly did the background reading and he understood that the island had a history of colonization and conquest. And yet that didn't deter him. I think it's the end of this bear is the title. It is the end. Thanks for correcting that, Matt. Yeah, yeah this got into this also rather remarkable case of the 1950s of Nick Saint and others who went to a part of the Amazon rainforest with a desire, intense desire to Christianize an indigenous group. And they also, as the title of that film suggests, met with a very unpleasant end. That's a really a, a kind of sacred text unto itself, the story of, of Jim Elliott and his fellow young American handsome missionaries. You see in our documentary a comic book that was released in the 1970s that tells the story of that fateful mission. And it's part of what inspired some of the visual language of our film. I mean, the ways in which these stories become parables and are visualized, too. And missionaries are, turns out, really good documentary filmmakers, too. Uh, I mean, there's, a, there's an amazing film, um, a documentary. Now, the end of the spear is a, is a narrative film that John saw. And he went to a Christian high school in Vancouver, Washington, and they showed the film. And his friend Levi Davis in the film says, John came out like swing. It was like he was swinging a lightsaber. He was like ready to, to go. He was like, that's what I want to do. And what's so interesting about John is at that age, 17, he found the Sentinelese. And he said, this is my purpose. This is my calling. And, and he sort of fused that with what he'd absorbed from Scripture and, and those teachings, but also these movies that he'd seen and these comic books that he'd read and, and the secular stories that we were talking about as well. John really absorbed or embodied two faiths. Amanda, you mentioned uh, Dan Everett, who's really a fascinating part of your film. He's an ex-missionary. He went to the Amazon rainforest in Brazil with a goal of converting indigenous people there. He learned their language, which is an extraordinary task in and of itself. Eventually, he had, a, shall we say, a change of heart where he began to think, look, this is wrong to try to convert this indigenous group, and I ought to be learning from them. And when you say eventually, I mean years and years and years of living there with his three babies. He really walked the walk in, in such a 
real way that very, 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 very few people do what he did. In fact, he may be the only one who then have this third act in life that's um, a complete revisit of, of his early self and his belief system. John like, lived publicly on social media, but was also elusive as a character. And I think in trying to grasp John and understand him and get inside of him, we found our way to these other characters like Dan Everett, like Adam Goodhart, the historian, like uh, the Indian anthropologist T.N. Pandit. And we called them John's alter egos. These were men who had embarked on similar missions, some religious, some secular, and lived long enough to reflect on their choices. And I think helped us round out or provide a kind of faceting to John. And uh, Dan in particular, I think, is a kind of ballast and a kind of heart and soul to the film because he's he's a missionary. And now this is a spoiler, right, Matt? I mean, he became a linguist. He spent years with the Pitaha and the Amazon, learned their language. They're radically empirical in their belief system. And they said to him, I think we should talk about it. They said to Dan, you know, you're preaching Jesus. Have you met this guy? And he said, well, no, I haven't met him. And basically, to make a long story short, they're like, then we're not interested. If you don't know this guy, we're not interested. And this triggers a crisis of faith for Dan that is really devastating. And I just think Dan brings a kind of self-awareness and anguish and reflection to the costs of missionary work that we need to reckon with in this film. And it's very important. I think we're lucky we found him. He's an extraordinary human. Every missionary I know has had their perspective altered as they've stayed for a long period of time. And I worked with Apita Ha for 30 years. At some point, I got to leave. I was struggling with my faith and not finding results that I wanted. There are some ways in which getting killed within the first second is a lot easier than slogging through 30 years and still having nothing to show for it at the end. When all that faith you had didn't produce the results you thought. I think the minute we found him and maybe the minute the National Geographic said they were game to dig into their own part in this, I think those two things really for us made this film have the kind of gravitas and the complexity that we needed to really make it work. Yeah, I, I would say there's, there's one other facet also, and, and this is in contrast to Dan and to some of the others who, I want to be careful how I say this, who certainly have gone through their conversions, and that's an organization uh, called All Nations, correct? Talk about that organization, and then I want to talk a little bit about that contrast between, say, Dan's conversion and that belief and how they perhaps aided or even enabled, and I think John's father believes enabled John, at least emotionally, in in what he was going to do. Well, John wasn't a lone wolf, as he was portrayed by some news organizations in the immediate aftermath of his death. John was the tip, but behind him was was an organization of of individuals and a group, All Nations most notably, which is a mission-sending organization. They're a group that trains and prepares missionaries to undertake the kinds of work that John engaged in. And what's unusual is that most mission-sending organizations will not send an unmarried male missionary to do this kind of work. They usually send couples or families. And they evaluated John, and they said to themselves, well, this kid is passionate, he's prepared. Does he have the Messiah complex, which they were worried about? Is he deluded? Is he out of his mind, basically? And they decided, no, 
He's perfectly rational. He's perfectly sensible. We're going to help him out. And they run him through a training in Kansas City in which they role play contact with a tribe. Uh, in, in this role play exercise, it's John and then a bunch of these staff people at All Nations dressed up as this indigenous tribe waving broomsticks at him. And on one hand, totally a rational exercise. Why not do some kind of psychological preparation for this dangerous work? On the other hand, totally diluted. Like, how could that possibly prepare you to encounter this group that almost no one alive has ever encountered? So I think that it's important to unpack that John's work was not anomalous. You know, it's part of a kind of a network. And I don't mean to say that in a kind of sinister way. I mean, missionaries are proud of the work they do and the healthcare they bring to people all over the world. But I do think that we, in telling John's story, need to fully understand that he was not acting alone and that they're going to send more Johns in, in the wake of his death. Yeah, you, you say, and again, I do not want to get into broad indictments of individuals. However, I have my feelings about missionaries and things like that. But you talk about, well, bringing health care and this and that. There is a moment towards the end of this film where Dan talks about the nature of consequence and the consequence of John's action and saying, by doing this, by going out and being missionaries, and he says, he's straight up against the whole mission concept, but what are you bringing people? And he literally says it, you're bringing them disease, outside contact, there's reality, bringing people disease, bringing them death, and perhaps violating their civil rights. Right after that, you have an individual from all nations saying, well, wait a minute, you're violating their civil rights. And they both use almost the exact same phraseology if you're not spreading the word of Jesus, and you have a right, you have a, an obligation to do that. If it's in Times Square, New York, you have an obligation to do that. If it's the North Sentinelese, I would argue Times Square is different. But that, to me, was very interesting, is that you put in, into this moment these two completely diametrically opposed ideas of what missionary work is like. Yeah. Well, I think that the morality question is so it's seen so differently depending on whether you think God is the end-all be-all or whether you're assessing the civil rights as something you understand and it's it's people to people. For instance, let's say that we knew that that island was about to be flooded, right? Because we know some huge tidal wave is coming in. Is it morally right to go make contact and tell them or get them off the island because we know what they don't or is it not? I think that a lot of these questions are very clear to me from my point of view as a secular person. There is no consent. You have been given zero consent. In fact, you've been given a very friendly warning, in fact, where they don't shoot you, they shoot your Bible. They say, no, whatever you're selling, we not interested. And you went anyway. And in my world, that's an absolutely not okay thing to do. But if it's eternal hellfire and that's the only thing that you're trying to save these people from, and that's your worldview, I, I, I have no argument for that. Um, I guess, you that know, it makes sense yeah, to that. I mean, you identify that maybe the, the unbridgeable gulf that exists That's in this narrative, but also in our society, right? And on the other hand, our hope is with this film that if you believe that John is a martyr and was just and moral in his actions, that you will be somewhat challenged by the story that is told here. And if you come to the film ready to condemn John, that you might see in the mirror that we hold up in your own reflection, the ways in which your own stories may have led you or your forebears to commit acts of cultural erasure and conquest and destruction on otherized peoples 
I don't know that we can knit that fissure, <laughs> but we can at least try to engage some kind of conversation across it. And like evil can evil. National Geographic Documentary Films and Picture House present the provocative new film, The Mission, from Emmy-winning directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. The Mission tells the gripping story of John Chow, the young American missionary killed, attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, examining how Chow's youthful thirst for adventure became a fatal obsession. Held by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. Compelling, says The Playlist. Riveting, says Deadline. The Mission, in select theaters, October 13th. One of the things I really found remarkable, and I'll say again about this film, it really was about looking at otherized cultures and in history. Amanda, you said something, and we've jumped around a little bit, and in some ways it's good because I think we're not spoiling the film, but you talked about a moment where the arrow hitting the Bible, and Dan, again, talking about the concept of making contact, where he says, look, people who live off bow and arrows don't miss. You know, that was not a lucky shot. And you talk about warnings. One of the things also that I, I just thought was very powerful about your film was that, again, that concept that these folks are quote-unquote savages, where actually, time and again, they've tried to warn people off. They've tried to say, we don't want contact. They've tried to say, hey, go away, leave us alone, we're happy with our life. They're savages. I, I don't want to make this overly political, and yet we live in a country where we got stand your ground where I don't even have to tell you to go away. If I feel threatened, I can pull a gun and shoot you. The law's on the books. I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about the concept of if I warn you multiple times with a bow and arrow and I got dark skin, I'm savage. If I say nothing but I got a gun, I, I'm exercising my rights. Anyway, I thought in that regard, this film worked on multiple levels. And one of the things, I guess this is not even a question, it's a deep appreciation of, again, excavating so many things out of a narrative that in and of itself is powerful. John's story, the story with his father, all of those elements are really, really remarkable. But within that, I just felt like, wow, this is an incredible dive into understanding the larger aspects of how anybody can get caught up in this, hey, this is a good thing. Is it really a good thing? Well, I, I think one of the many things that's remarkable about John's diary that survives is that he recounts in great detail these forays to the island and makes very clear in his description of what happened that they were sending him a strong message. And they didn't just kill him when he landed. They said in their own language, in their own actions, go away. And he didn't heed that advice. And second, Part of what I hope we provide in the contextualization of the fragmentary history of the Sentinelese is an understanding of what has been visited upon them by people like Maurice Vidal Portman, the English viceroy who oversaw the tribe in the late 19th century and kidnapped their children. I mean, this is 
what they live with. And I, I'm not sure John knew that history. He probably should have because it's out there in the world. So I think it's a question posed by Adam Goodhart to late in the film, you know, is this faith or madness? And what is the line here? And I do think that some people might think in failing to heed what most of us would consider to be rational advice to stay away, an arrow in your Bible, he persisted. Now, to others, that is a, a act of radical faith, which will make John a martyr for millennia. Who knows? I think that is partly what is so important about your film, is this larger context because I'm stating the obvious, but we live on, on lands in the United States taken from indigenous peoples, ostensibly in the name of Christianization. Clearly, there was a desire for resources, for land. So one can argue about whether truly the impetus was to Christianize a quote-unquote savage group. And yet that was certainly part of the motivating ideology. So this film really speaks to the world that we live in and applies, of course, to all of South America and so many other parts of the world. There's a reason this story caught our attention, but also it was global news when the story first broke. I mean, it became a meme. It's a small moment, really. One person, one small tribe, very small island, very far away. But it is one of those moments of contact a meeting that resonates, has echoes to so many moments in history that still happen. And I, I, I think that that's part of, you, you just can't believe this is 2023, but here we are. There's still an island that is generally uncontacted, and there's still missionaries doing this kind of work. Um, has there been any larger discussions and or any fallout about missionary work? Again, John... Technically, as you said earlier, it was a clandestine mission, but he clearly had help. There are clearly organizations out there who are trying to get individuals to go to places where there have not been contact or a lot of contact. You know, what, what is the state of the state at this point? We've shared the film with all nations, and, and it's our sincere hope that they are willing to engage in a conversation about the film and about their support of John. I'm grateful that they agreed to talk with us. I mean, that says something. I hope there is an opportunity to share the movie with church congregations. And um, no, I'm not super optimistic, but I do think that we worked hard to hear from people within John's community about him and his choices. And I think allowing some voices of criticism to come from within and not strictly from without. You know, it was a animating question of the project was, what does good missionary work look like? And I think that's a great conversation to have. And I'm still looking for the answer. I don't think I've found it yet. What does missionary work look like that doesn't involve the erasure of another culture? John says, uh, or actually Dan Everett says, you know, you're, you're imposing a superstition on a people who were not superstitious. I mean, that's his words, superstition. Um, or it's transactional. I will give you this if you if you listen. I mean, anyway, there's a lot of problematic. I don't agree with you that there is a good missionary work. But I think there's also like a healthy amount of self-reflection necessary for those of us who do extractive work. I mean, we, we make documentary films, anthropologists. I think there, there, there is a certain amount of self-awareness that we have to bring. And, and I, hopefully the film provokes that too. When we take stories from people, what do we owe them? 
Um, what what do we impose upon them when we take their stories? Who are we to tell their stories? You know, you could tie yourself in knots and paralyze yourself and <laughs> never make anything. If but but I think we we're much more aware of 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 our perspective now. And I mean, you mentioned Matt too. Thanks um, for calling out just you know some of the history that we're reckoning with now. I mean, the Times has done this amazing recent reporting on, on Indian schools. We've seen Canada's engaged in another conversation and, and a kind of truth and reconciliation about what this hidden history is. And I think there was an early cut of the film using Dan Everett's interview. We, he actually just acknowledged that history here. And it was kind of taking us to a whole another layer that we couldn't properly do justice to. But I do think this film hopefully belongs in that larger conversation and, and I hope is in its contained way, a useful way to, to, to bring these questions to people. Much of John's story, and the, I want to talk a little bit about aesthetic, because I, I don't get to make documentaries, but I do make films, so I always appreciate aesthetic. And much of John's story, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but he is, he's passed, uh, if people didn't understand that from the story. He took a lot of footage. He was someone, like most young people, he had a GoPro. He was filming himself in many places. But there was much of his story, the clandestine part, that there, there was no record. And you choose to represent that with animation. And I just want to talk about that choice and the style. And for you directing that and directing those portions and putting the animation style together. That was a big departure for us. I mean, you saw Boy State, present tense, verite, filmmaking. This is a very past tense story. It's interview and lots of social media type media to work with. But what to do with the contact moment itself. And we thought through all the various ways to represent that, and they all did not feel right for a lot of different reasons. Any kind of live reenactment, obviously we weren't going to go there. There's so many problems with who would play the Sentinelese, who would, how do we even... So I think that animation was something we think can be very beautiful in documentary. It's something we've never done before. We wanted to try it, challenge ourselves. And then it also seemed to come naturally from this particular story, given all of the cartoons and, and the, the kind of adventure stuff that John took in as a little as a little kid. It felt like the right medium. And what I love about animation is it is so subjective. We present this image to you. It is so clearly not exactly how the thing looked. No one's going to be confused about whether that's what it actually looked like. So you know it's our imagining of that moment. Um, or that they're going to be confused that it's the thing itself. Which, that's what I meant, yeah. You yeah know, the thing which is, can be interesting formally in a, in a nonfiction film if there's some confusion about. But I think in this particular case and in a film about representation, there was a lot of intentionality yeah. and, and, and thinking and, and sort of ethical consideration about, around this. There's also, I think, foundationally for John, he, he kind of willed himself into being a storybook character and with ultimate consequences. And I think that there was an aspect to animation which seemed to kind of reflect that. He became a character in a story that was ultimately beyond his narrative control. Then this is a film that needed for us a kind of emotional anchor. I think, because John is hard to relate to in some way. And Patrick was that gateway for us. And I think to bring to life in a kind of, they have a kind of epistolary relationship. You know, John writes his diary and his 
letters and yeah. his master plan. And Patrick has this grieving letter and, and they kind of be in conversation indirectly with each other. And we could use the animated space to kind of put them in conversation. And so within our modest means and with great artistic collaborators, we learned the hard way how difficult <laughs> it is to, 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 to produce animation. But I think the results are, are really beautiful uh, and, and appropriate for this story. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, as a parent, um, you know, or any parent thinking about their children. And I had spent a lot of time around my boys and around that age and those things that influence them and those things as a father that I would say the places where I agree, but I don't agree that way. You know, sometimes it's, it's easier to disagree than partially agree. So what I think I appreciated most about the animation, while I wanted to bring that up, it truly had a flow to it. It's also really a testament to our patrons, National Geographic, that they're not known for animation, but our exec really, I think, took a leap of faith and recognized that this story demanded it, a, a different approach, and, and um, really allowed us to run with that. And um, not that we're short on ethnographic imagery and, and other things that they're known for. It, in a way, it wasn't a hard sell. They just got it. So that was great. you me. I'm coming off of a film. I wish I had that. That's all I got was no. <laughs> oh, yeah. you're killing me. I, that, listen, that's one of the beauties, I think, of actually working in the documentary space is that you all, I mean, I, we have so many conversations with people who just, we're going to get it done. We are going to get a story. We're going to be creative in that dispensation. We're going to make a little go a long way. I don't want to minimize the scope and scale of your story, but when you say those things about, hey, we want to do this, and we found partners who are going to let us do it, whether it's the artistry, whether it's the frankness of it. I just applaud you in your efforts and, and again, in your work. It's a phenomenal film. It really is. Thanks, John. Thank you. Yes, thank you to the directors of the mission, Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss, for joining us on DocTalk. I was great speaking with Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss about the mission. Uh, which is from National Geographic Documentary Films, and we should certainly behooves us to mention that our podcast, Doc Talk, is presented with support from National Geographic Documentary Films. One of the things that I do appreciate is um, being able to reconcile some of these things, and for a company like Nat Geo, who did apologize, and I'll mention that again in the interview many, many years ago, and take another look at how we explore the ways that we explore, and the things that we talk about. And that's one of the reasons I appreciate being with you here on, on Doc Talk, Matt, because I like being able to talk about stories within stories. And by the way, I got a really good story within a story for next week. Are you at all curious? I am, and I think I know what you're going to refer to. You know, our good friend Errol Morris uh, who you had an amazing conversation with in our very first episode. We, you know, we talk about filmmakers, documentary filmmakers saving the world, and you talk to filmmakers um, among them. I think it was um, Joel Berlinger, Amy Berg, but Errol Morris about the thin blue line and and how they literally had, had uh, he among these other filmmakers had, had saved people's lives. What I'm going to talk about is his new documentary, an absolutely fascinating story about a writer and, and being a writer. I thought it was incredible. The writer that most people know is John Le Carey, the spy novelist. Uh, his real name was David Cornwell. It is an amazing film. 
was at the Toronto International Film Festival, I believe. Yes, and premiered uh, at Telluride, and then it went, went immediately to Toronto. Yeah, I, it, it's an amazing film. Errol, as you know, is is always a delight to speak with. It's the Pigeon Tunnel, and I look forward to that conversation with him next week. We look forward to that. Thank you for joining us on Doc Talk, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. 